Coming to you from the mountain fortress of pop culture. You're listening to Time to Talk. Artists seem to get in the way of the music. Get out of the way of the music. Welcome to The Fortress, the place where pop culture tragics and devotees gather to sacrifice small, organically bred animals to the pop gods. Everything these days is vinyl, vinyl, vinyl. And even if it's digital, producers are falling over themselves to mimic the rich and scratchy vinyl sound. But back in 1995, I was desperate to save my money so I could get my hands on Michael Jackson's ridiculously expensive remastered greatest hits. Remastering was a relatively new concept at the time and geeks like me really wanted to impress their friends with the ultimate sound quality from their hi-fi compact disc system. So when Mr. Jackson released History, Past, Present and Future, which was masterfully packaged as a greatest hits with an additional completely new album, people like me had to get their hands on it. It took me three weeks to save the 50 or so Australian dollars required to own this brilliant piece of work. Brilliant, if not a little paranoid, this music, arguably Mr. Jackson's last great work. Today we retro review the history album with Simon and Pez. Welcome to The Fortress. Hello. Hi. And Pez, this is your first time in the fortress. You've met our baby dragon, Igor, I noticed. He checked you out and he liked you. And probably hear him purring as we speak. And uh, I tell you what, Pez, I couldn't ask for a better informed panel member for this one. Tell us about the book you've produced and published entitled The Story of History. Yeah, so uh, thanks for having me in the fortress. Um, you've done great jobs with the damp. Um, it's pretty good. So, <laughs> Thank you. yeah, the, I mean, the book, The Story of History, it kind of came about from uh, originally being just an article that I was looking to write. Um, I'd appeared on TV in the UK up against uh, some bizarre woman who wanted to discuss um, Michael Jackson and the allegations against him. And uh, based on that, I sort of came out and thought, oh, I really want to talk more about this. So I started working on this article. Um, and over the course of a couple of weeks, it just kept growing and growing and growing. And then I sort of looked and went, oh, God, I've got a book on my hands here. 18 months later, this book is all around the world, which is a, a huge achievement. And so I think it's the first time anyone's actually dived into the history album in such a way, obviously until today, because we're about to do it here as well. Um, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a really kind of labor of love and, and glad to have it out there. And it's doing incredibly well, as I understand it. By the way, for the listeners, and I don't usually do this, but I will just make a comment. If you can hear funny sounds coming across this podcast, it's because at the time of recording this, Australia is facing pretty amazing floods. I can't say unprecedented because Australia is the land of droughts and flooding rains. And we've uh, got rain coming down like you wouldn't believe on the rooftop around the studio and helicopters, news cameras, rescue helicopters, all kinds of aircraft as well. So if you hear that, you'll understand what it is. So Pez, you're a self-declared Michael Jackson tragic and you've actually touched the hand of 
this pop god at one stage. And I believe <laughs> when you did, Mr. Jackson, I love this, was wearing a T-shirt with his own face on it when you actually met. Yeah, so if ever there's an example of feeling like you're on drugs, it's looking at Michael Jackson, looking at Michael Jackson wearing a T-shirt of himself whilst in a theatre watching Mary Poppins on stage. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, it's a dream. I, yeah, it's a dream and some sort of weird acid trip at the same time. But um, <laughs> it was, you know, a very, very great moment in my life and sort of in, inspired everything I've done since then. So, yeah, absolute testament to years of following him around and finally getting to meet him. You're a, you're a Michael Jackson fan too, Simon, right? Yeah, to an extent. But you've never had the pleasure of, of meeting Michael. I have not, no. Well, I mean, I can't now. Well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Although, here's the perfect segue, moving into talking specifically about history for a moment. One of my favourite moments of this era, I don't know why it says a lot about me, was the uh, the gigantic statues, one of which uh, floated down the, the River Thames. There's still one yeah. outside a McDonald's store in Sweden. So you might not be able to meet him, but you could go and you know look up at one of these i don't know what they weigh something like 500 kilogram statues of him yeah i, I could have done i didn't um, <laughs> you still could there's still time simon i was born in uh, south africa that's a wolverine now so you could always visit that and it's kind of you get two for one <laughs> do you know what i found interesting pez that as this floated down the river thames and you know without any you know, pre-publicity, so people were just like taken off guard. Uh, most people were trying to work out: is that Michael Jackson or is it Garcon from Beauty and the Beast? <laughs> yeah, I can actually see the similarities now. You say it. Um, they didn't have the same the same creator of the original statue do that one. Um, and no. you know, I'm very good friends with her, and she absolutely hates those big ones. She's like, oh god, they look like monsters. Um, but you know, I think I think they did what they intended to do, which was to sort of make this bold statement that no one else has ever done. Well, let's start with the bold statement. There has never been a more audacious promotional campaign for a piece of pop culture any time in history than this. Anyone who hasn't seen the history teaser, which is essentially a four-minute mini film, really, they need to go and see it. It is an absolute masterclass in how a pop icon can simultaneously create and cement their own iconic status. Now, this film is more than simply a little over the top. It has absolutely no hint of irony or sarcasm. Michael portrays himself as a cultural and political giant, one that transcends humanity, one that commands the full admiration and allegiance of world armies, men, women, children. Put simply, this film shows Michael Jackson as God. God. Pez, what can you tell us about this film? It is, frankly, I can't stop watching it, but for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, I mean, your assessment is pretty much the same as the record company's assessment um, when Michael told them what he wanted to do. Um, initially, he wasn't actually going to be in it, and the idea was that it would just sort of be this teaser for the album that featured uh, iconic moments and just, you know, snapshots of maybe um, a glove or his feet or whatever and you know just sort of not really focusing on him and so they went off to uh, Budapest and, and started shooting this thing and within a day or two of Michael seeing um, some footage that was sent over to him in New York he jumped on a plane and flew to Budapest and said I have to be a part of this and it just it was another one of those Michael Jackson productions that just grew and grew as it went on and I think you know for me I'm fascinated by it I think it's fantastic 
I do think it comes apart where it really doesn't connect with the finished product of the album. Um, and the reason I say that is because when it was made, it was very much made for the greatest hits album. Of course, over the period of time that followed the filming of that teaser, this album morphed into a two disc, you know, new stuff and whatever. So this statue didn't quite fit this idea of this new music and what that was representing. Mm. Yeah, there was a disconnect indeed on, on a few levels. Simon, have you seen that, that video we're talking about? I have. And I agree with everything you said. When Madonna does something similar, like to say, I'm an icon, I am history, I am these things, it, her tongue is slightly in her cheek at least. You know, people make bold statements and without much evidence. If I make the, the statement that Michael was self-deluded, I point to this video. Here it is. Do you Here's think it... Evidence. Do you think it could point to the fact, though, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm biased in a way, but do you think it could point to the fact that he'd reached a point in his career where it was really like, you know, and obviously after the allegations, he couldn't do right for doing wrong. So just thought, you know what? To hell with it. Yes, I'm amazing. Yes, I'm great. Yes, I did Billie Jean. Have a statue. Eat it. Yeah, have a statue, but do you have to have, you know, all the world's armies gathering around its feet looking up while it bursts open and people fall to their knees and start hailing it like it's Jesus Christ? Unbelievable. I mean, why not? You know, if you've got the money and you've got the the success level to do it, why not? (laughs) Well, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, sort of godlike and Christ-like imagery in this period, wasn't there? I'm sure we'll get there, but, you know because this was around the time of the Brit Awards and everything. And yeah, so yeah, I, th- I think th- there was a definite feeling that he'd uh, transcended from just being a really famous pop star to thinking that he was God. And it's such a shame because essentially in the world of pop, he was God and he mm. deserved to be God. He didn't need to do this. It was like a complete – and that brings me to my point. Let's talk about the album. To me, this is – I love the album. I'm going to put it straight out there. I think it's a great album even though um, – and I'm not talking about the, the greatest hits part. I'm talking about the new content. I think it's, for the most part, e- extremely good. It's great. It's as good as Michael Jackson gets. But it's a, it's a really angry, resentful, paranoid album compared to his other work. It, it, there's like a spitting sound to a lot of his lyrics. There's there's hissing. I know he has those tender moments in there with um, songs like You Are Not Alone. Uh, but for the most part, this album, the themes of it, and don't get me wrong, I love a project that focuses on themes, so I commend him for that anyway. But, I mean, this is really about how he has been persecuted, like Jesus Christ in a way, by the media, sexual abuse claims, police, greedy leeches, Everyone's out to get Michael, according to this album. Yeah, I think that's a you know a sort of um, good assessment of where he was going with it. I think obviously it does encompass a lot more, and the problem that the album had in particular is that so much of the coverage was focused on one or two points within the album um, that it kind of overshadowed where he was really going with it. And I mean, if you look at this album as a package, you know, one of the critiques was oh, he talks too much about the allegations. You know, we don't want to hear about that. So then let's flip it on its head and say, okay, he just got married. He's going to do a whole album of love songs. And then the critics would have said, we don't care about your marriage. We want to hear what happened to you in 93. Yeah, exactly. So it was really, again, it it sort of plays into the point I made about the teaser that he was so damned if he did, damned if he didn't, that it's like, I'm just going to do this my way. I'm going to have my say. I'm going to put it out there. And, uh, you know, to hell with everybody. 
Oh, look, I think the, the greatest artists that exist focus on what's going on for them in their lives and their learned experiences. Um, so I have no problem that he focused on, I mean, God, this, this period in his life must have been intense. And as an artist, he's going to get it out that way. But I'm, I'm more curious about the message that he's putting in there, not the fact that he made the message. The message in there is absolutely one that absolves him, absolves him of any responsibility, any accountability. Everyone else is wrong except for Michael Jackson. I would have liked there to be a song in there about where he could have done things better, where he might have made mistakes, but he doesn't. Everyone else is wrong and he's Jesus who did everything right. Well, I don't think he was really in a position where he could where he could take on any guilt because if he did that, then he'd have been completely, completely crucified in the media. Like he wouldn't have had a career. And, the, you know, it's debatable whether, apart from Blood on the Dance Floor, it's debatable whether he really had a career after this anyway. I, yeah, I think that it, it's, it would have been a very dangerous line in 95 to have, you know, tried to go, oh, maybe I did do some things I shouldn't have done. Okay, look, I take your point about child abuse. That would be very difficult to take accountability for if he's clearly denying those accusations. However, his part in the media and his part in the interest police have raised, there's no accountability there. I mean, the media are interested in you because you have incited the media to an extent. Police interest in him, well, his choice of lifestyle attracts attention and scrutiny. It just does. But there's nothing like that in these lyrics at all. This is just purely... Don't believe it. It's trash. It's it's blatant lies. And actually, Michael, there's somewhere in the middle, and that's what he never got. But I think equally that that kind of assessment is is not in the middle either. I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. You know, he did invite the media in, and the hyperbaric chamber stories were stories that his team put out there. The elephant man bone stories are stories that his team put out there. You know, this was part of a, a PR campaign um, mm-hmm. back in the bad era to generate interest. But at the same time, you know, when you look at some of the media coverage, especially around the History album, there is so much undertone of racism, mm. you know, of, um, you know, many different areas of uh, where he is being judged, unfairly so. He's constantly called, uh, you know, accused of being gay, even though he keeps saying, I'm not gay, I'm not gay. You know, they say, yes, you are. Maybe you are. You know, you want to be white. I have a skin condition. Now you want to be white. So... Mm. It's kind of, you know, I find it hard for him to, to be able to find that middle ground. And, you know, you obviously you mentioned the, the sort of police involvement as well. There was police involvement, but then there's police involvement, you know. And I think if you look at today's society, for example, we're seeing that difference between police involvement and police involvement. Oh, yeah. no, don't uh, try and put him up there with the, the likes of, you know, Black Lives Matters and things like no, no, that. No, 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 no. Just, just, no, hold on for a sec. I mean, people made accusations against Michael Jackson. Police are obliged to follow those accusations up. He had an FBI file, by the way, well before Geordie Chandler came out with his allegations. And by the way, if you, anyone who's ever read those, they are absolutely detailed and shouldn't just be dismissed quite as easily as many of the fans do. The point I was actually leading to is if you look at something like, for example, being strip searched and having your penis measured by law enforcement as there's, you know, seven or eight people standing in a room, of course he's going to speak about victimisation of the police because that's a horrific position to be in. You know, and I've often pointed to this and I do point to it in my book as well, that if Michael Jackson wanted to make these allegations go away, he would have done anything not to be strip searched and photographed naked, bearing in mind he had a skin condition. He would have paid off anything 
But he stood there, he stripped off, he was photographed, and he spent the rest of his life worrying that those pictures might come out. At the hands of law enforcement who were, and it's proven, those law enforcement from Santa Barbara were corrupt. And that is not just Michael Jackson. If you look into the other cases that they dealt with, there is core evidence that they were corrupt. And so, yeah, I think he had absolutely every right to go down the sort of police route as well. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's a fair call. And Tom Sneddon has also gone on the record to say that those photos will never be destroyed. Exactly. You know, imagine holding that threat over someone. We, we're kind of in a society now where, you know, celebrities have nude leaks all the time and it's kind of like, oh, shocking, and then everybody's over it. But imagine if, if Michael Jackson's <laughs> nudes got out there. Could you imagine? It would be it would be insane. Yeah. No, I'm with you on that. I agree with you 100%. Okay, let, let's... Let's dive into this album. Um, Scream is the opening single, and famously with Janet Jackson as well. And uh, at the time, I believe, the most expensive music video ever made. When I talk about, you know, a lot of anger and resentment, I mean, this is very deliberate. It's not accidental. This is an angry, resentful, bitter song. Makes him want to scream, and I think he captures it beautifully. It's a great opening track. Um, I mean, I love Scream, and I think it was the kind of perfect comeback track. If you're going to come back, um, you know, with a new album, you want to hit it out of the park with something banging that's going to get people dancing in the clubs, and I think Scream absolutely did that. Um, And bringing Janet in as well, you know, genius move. He'd been asking Janet to sort of duet since, well, originally for Dangerous, and she sort of said, no, you know, it's not the right time. And then, you know, he, he asked her again in 94 and she said, yeah, OK, let's do it. Um, and one of the songs that was presented alongside Scream for Michael was Runaway. I don't know if you're familiar with that, the Janet song Runaway. Well, I love that song. Yeah. So that was actually presented to Michael as one of the options um, when it was in its mm. early incarnation. And Janet sort of went to Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis like, please don't give it to him. I want that one. <laughs> uh, she's like he's gonna love scream he's gonna love the one that we're gonna call scream and she was right he did um and interestingly you know when it comes to scream janet was very much at the helm of a lot of that um you know she sort of picked that out of the of the demos that they were working on she picked the director for the for the music video um and that was really kind of part a lot of it was driven by her which i always find interesting seeing as it's the lead single from michael's album i absolutely adore it um again it's you know you know me i'm really nostalgic so i think it probably is heavily nostalgic for me but it just completely blew my mind the whole thing like the video the styling of the video how they both look in it like i've spent my entire life wanting to go out looking like that all the time <laughs> um the the fact that they won an mtv award for choreography for it even though the choreography is like seconds long like there's very little choreography in it um just yeah just everything about it i just think is absolutely incredible i don't know why i can't help but look at because you can often compare michael and janet and when i watch the dancing i just i'm so proud of janet keeping up with michael which is probably really patronizing but i love the fact that she is every bit as good in this clip as he i think she's a better dancer than him she's a better she's like a better technical dancer than he is omg simon In in Scream, I agree with you. In Scream, I agree with you. I think she dances better in Scream, and he sings better on Scream. Yeah. I mean, he he sang better anyway, generally. (laughs) She's she's definitely a much more, like, sort of trained technical dancer, and he was much more of a 
natural dancer. Absolutely. Um, and when you watch him do choreography, it doesn't ever look quite as good as him just doing stuff on his own. Sometimes amateurs know best, and a lack of professionalism is all you'll hear on the Time to Talk show. Join Tim and his panel of guests as they wade their way through a range of news, music, and pop culture treats. Time to Talk, the show hosted by amateurs for unprofessional listeners. Amateurs, is this the best that they could do? Track two on the album, They Don't Care About Us. Now, this caused a bit of a furor at the time, and from what I understand, so much so that he um, made different versions of it in second and third pressings. Is that correct, Pez? Yeah, so initially, obviously, the album came out with um, some lyrics that that caused a bit of a stir, and Michael agreed to go back into the studio and re-record it. Obviously, what were that, those lyrics? So they were two offensive lyrics, uh, slurs uh towards jewish people um am i okay to say them or yes please do I mean, um, sugarcoat. so he says in the lyrics do me sue me everybody do me kick me kike me don't you black or white me what um, does that mean i remember being a, a lad at the time and hearing all of this and i went back first of all i can never understand michael jackson's lyrics anyway so it was neither here nor there <laughs> but when when they were printed in the paper and I, I still couldn't understand what he meant so what what do those words imply even though he denies the implication but what could they mean to a jewish person i mean uh, the word is obviously an ethnic slur for for jewish people and you know understandably I can understand why people would be hurt by that. Um, obviously, that wasn't Michael's intention from what he said. Um, and I don't believe he meant it in, a, in an offensive way. But if somebody takes offense to it and, and says, you know, you've hurt me with this, he did absolutely the right thing and, and took it out. Um, but I think, you know, that kind of overshadowed what the song ultimately was about and ultimately has become um, in later years. And I think it never, ever sort of shifted that cloud above its head when to me it's his best song of the nineties by far. Mm. I think it's interesting though, that like the whole point of those lyrics surely was that the song is about kind of racial inequality and um, all of the things that he experienced and he was putting them onto another um, minority group rather than, himself i suppose for that to as i think i always saw it as like a kind of inclusion thing like he was trying to kind of include other people in what he was saying about his experiences of his own life and his own color and i think people just um didn't understand that at the time like i didn't i didn't think there was any way you could take it as though he meant it in like an offensive way and it was a slur because it wouldn't even make any sense if he was saying it in that way like the lyrics just wouldn't have scanned properly if that was what he was doing yeah absolutely michael jackson released a statement at the time and he wrote the idea that these lyrics could be deemed objectionable is extremely hurtful to me and misleading the song in fact is about the pain of prejudice and hate and is a way to draw attention to social and political problems i am the voice of the accused and the attacked by the way there's that paranoia again i am the voice of everyone i am the skinhead I am the Jew, I am the black man, I am the white man. I am not the one who is attacking. It is about the injustices to young people and how the system can wrongfully accuse them. I am angry and outraged, but I could be so misinterpreted. 
I'm curious about the pressure. Like we live in a different time now. Like I can see these days why you would be going straight back to the printing press and redoing these lyrics and pumping out a, a new version of the album. That would just be a given these days because nobody's allowed to say anything. Back then in 95, given that statement that I just read to you, Pez, are you surprised that he actually did capitulate in the end and, and go back and rewrite? Yeah, I mean, I didn't. I, you know, if Michael said he was going to go and do that, I believe he had every faith that he would. And there was a lot of push from the record company as well um, to support what he said he was going to do, which was to go and change it. Um, and, you know, obviously I'm very good friends with a lot of people that worked on the record um, at Sony. And they just sort of said, you know, <laughs> we were just trying to make sure there was no fires with this album. Um, and before it even came out, there was a stir around the lyrics for this song. And we were just like, what do we do? Do we pull it? Do we change it? It's too late. You know, there's millions in a warehouse ready to go. So um, the day that he actually went to, to change that, he turned up at the studio. Um, he said hello to the two record execs that had gone to be there with him. He walked into the studio and he said to the engineer, punch me in on the offensive word. I'll sing the new word. Punch me back out again. So they did that for the first part. And then in between... Michael just flew into a fit of rage and it trashed the studio. And there's a uh, footage of it online that ultimately ended up on MTV. He's throwing the mic stand. He's kicking the uh, the music stand. He chucks a chair across the room. So he does all of this for sort of three minutes, comes out of the studio, says to the two execs, goodbye, and gets in the car. And, Jesus. And, and that was literally, you know, the, uh, the execs said to me afterwards, like, that's the shortest conversation we've ever had with him. Hello and goodbye. <laughs> Jesus. Simon, what about that story? I didn't know any of that. That's really interesting. He always seems so kind of mild-mannered, and I can't imagine everyone that's worked with him has always talked about how lovely he was and how kind of easy he was to work with, and, like, I just can't imagine him being like that. Well, I mean, <clears throat> the story clearly shows, and it goes to the statement that I read too, you know, he didn't particularly want to change lyric. Is that what you'd take from that, Pez? Yeah, I think, you know, he, he obviously wanted to make it right. And I think it would come from a very hypocritical place for him if he was sort of saying, you know, on this same album, as, as you mentioned at the beginning, he's saying, you know, I'm a victim in this circumstance. This has happened to me. I feel persecuted against. For somebody else to then come and say, well, actually, Michael, I feel like you're persecuting me. And him to go, well, no, I'm not. You know, I'm carrying on as I am. And I think that would have been really hypocritical. So... I could understand why he wouldn't want to change it because, you know, that's that's his song, but I think he did the right thing by by going and changing it. Before we move into track three, can we stop, take pause and think about the uh, the cover for a moment? I know we mentioned yeah. the, the giant statue and you've talked, Pez, about how that might not quite fit given, you know, what the content of the album is. But, I mean, th this is – it's it's a great album cover. I, I remember holding this – and CDs, uh, for, for people who are a bit younger, they won't get – like to actually hold something, a product in your hand, was really <laughs> exciting. To go to the record shop – that's why – that's part of the reason vinyls come back. It's not just the sound. It's the fact that you get to hold and look at the artistic value 
and the mm. weight of artistic value. It's amazing. And uh, for people in Australia, you'll know Richard Wilkins, an entertainment reporter. I was down at Darling Harbour in Sydney. There was a massive launch. I don't think we had a statue, um, but we had a massive launch for history, and I went down there for that amongst all these – oh, sorry, Pez, I know you're one of them, but these psychotic uh, Michael Jackson fans and I was in the show. <laughs> Big fan, but nothing like what these Michael Jackson fans are like. They're unbelievable. Um, so, yeah, and, and Mr. Wilkins is handing them out left, right, and centre, and he's looking for who's dancing to Michael the best and he's handing them a free copy as i said at the beginning i couldn't afford one so i was desperate to get my hands on it and he just wasn't impressed with my moves so i didn't get one but <laughs> i remember the friend next to me got one and and i just i held it for a moment and this even having the two cds together it was quite i think it might have been the first time i'd seen a double cd and it was just precious and the booklet was beautifully made and the words in it were beautifully made there was something to behold here wasn't there Absolutely. And I think, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning about the statue not quite fitting, it really is, to me, the ultimate greatest hits cover. If you're going to say, hey, I've been the artist of the 80s, Madonna may disagree. Um, (laughs) You know, if you're going to say, I've been the artist of the 80s, I had Billie Jean, I had Smooth Criminal, and now I'm putting all those classics on one album. How would you encapsulate that? Of course, you'd stick a giant statue of yourself on the cover. Um, and I think, you know, to have, have two discs and just sort of just make it, everything was in excess, wasn't it? Everything was bumper. And that's really what the history era became. Everything was larger than life. The videos, the music, the image, the hair, the costumes. Um, and I think that's why it's so loved by so many uh, fans in Europe because of that. Pez, I've always wanted to ask this. Um, why was it called Book One? Because that implied to me that there was another one in the works coming. Or was it Book One was the greatest hits and Book Two was the new content? I think, I mean, I think Michael always had the intention to call it Book Two, uh, to have a Book Two, um, but it never came. I mean, it's one of those ideas at the time that says, like, yeah, and then we're going to do Book Two. And then you move on to the next project. You're like, oh, yeah, I was going to do Book Two. Um, so I think, you know, I mean, I asked Dan Beck who named the album history, um, where that came from. And he was like, I called it history. And then by the time it was printed, it was history, past, present and future book one. So (laughs) I don't know where that came from. Wow. But it's, it's a great, I love the history the the play on the words, his story too, with the capital H I S. I think that was really clever as someone who loves words. I think that was well picked and especially given it's inspired by, um, the immaculate collection. So the uh, execs were sitting in a room trying to come up with a name for the album because Michael's people had just said, you know what, you name it. And uh, Polly Anthony, who worked at Sony at the time, said, God, we need something really clever like Madonna's Immaculate Collection. Uh, you know, it's like a play on a play on something. And that's mm. how history came about. It was oh, wow. history of his career and his story, his side of the story. Um, and that's that's where that came from. That's amazing. I didn't know that. Yeah, I don't think he knew it either, because if he knew that it was inspired by a Madonna title, I don't think he'd have been too happy about it. No, but I mean, the Immaculate Collection is literally the best name for a greatest hits ever. Absolutely. Like, it's just incredible. You say what you want about that rival rivalry between Prince Madonna and Michael Jackson, but they kept each other moving to the next level, didn't they? I mean, you need some <laughs> rivalry to get you moving. I, I actually didn't know that history was meant to be as clever as the, the Immaculate Collection. That's awesome. What was the it, what was with the Armageddon background too? Like that's the way I've always interpreted the colour. Like I'm curious about why that, and because he, the message in the booklet is very much about this is only 
the history up to this point, believe me, there's a lot more to come. That's sort of what the booklet implies. Yet there's Armageddon in the background, like we're at the end of the world at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like they did, I think it was about eight different versions of that statue and cover. So there was a gold statue on a blue sky. There was a metallic oh, like statue that. on a white sky. Um, and then they settled on, believe it or not, this statue, which is actually white marble. If you look at it, everybody thinks it's grey stone. It's not. It's actually white marble. Oh. Um, so you can just see it on like uh, the armpit area where it uplights. You can see it's white and it's actually a white statue. Um, and I think, you know, they I mean, they liked that one best with the red sky. For me, I think it was about um, cementing a time. Um, in his life and just sort of saying, you know, this is a real moment that happened here. And when I'm done with it, I'm moving on from it. And the track list of the album, if you look, you start with Scream, which is like shouting and raging and screaming. And then you get to Smile, which literally ends with him whistling and skipping off into the sunset. It's it just, you know, it perfectly cements that time period in his life. Let's move on to track three, Stranger in Moscow. I really uh, have never particularly liked this track, I, I understand why it's a. I can tell it's a brilliantly written and constructed pop song. I get that, but for some reason, it's just never resonated with me. And then when he chose to release it, I was like, "Oh, not this one. There's other ones, please, Michael." But anyway, and then he released it, and I thought the boring video clip didn't help at all. Um, what can you tell us about "Stranger in Moscow," as he says? Well, firstly, how dare you? Because it's amazing. Fair um, <laughs> <laughs> um, call. So Stranger in Moscow came about, um, Michael was working on the soundtrack for Sonic 3 uh, with Sega. And so the chord progression for Stranger in Moscow was actually some chords they were working on for Sonic 3. Um, when Michael was in Moscow and he called up his um, music producer and said, you know, hey, I wanna, I've been writing this, this poem overnight and I would really like you to just sort of play some sounds and I can see what I like. So Michael went down to his room and they played, um, you know, played various things. And then he played these chords, which he'd written for, for Sonic 3. And Michael just went, that's it. That's, that's the sound I want. That's the song. Um, and it was at a very dark time in his life. The allegations had just started to swirl around and he was in Moscow. Um, and back in the U S there was a huge, you know, storm around everything that was happening. And I think, you know, in terms of reflection and metaphor, it's just one of his best works um, that he ever did. You know, the metaphors in it are just phenomenal. And I think it really is one of those underrated songs that kind of hides on the album and often peaks up but never quite gets the focus. Well, t t tell us about some of those metaphors. So, well, you know, he says in there, he says, I mean, this is not a metaphor, but one of the things he does say is, you know, take my name and just let me be. That's like, I'll give it all up. I'm done with it. Mm. Take it. Mm. Just leave me alone. And then he says, um, there's another great line that he says in there where it's just kind of, the song almost suggests like the Michael Jackson brand has got so big that not even he can manage it anymore. Mm. And if he was to take himself out of it, it would still keep running. And if you look, we've been seeing that since 2009 when he passed away, that you take him out and it's still going. You know, mask of life feeling insane. It's like going out constantly wearing this mask. But is but he just feels a completely different way. And I think he just, at that time, I really believe he wanted to quit. And he just said, you know, I, I want to be done with this. But, you know, what a great exorcism moment um, with that song. I thought the video was really pretty. 
Um, I think it's nice because there's so much on this album that's um, that's sort of you know political and and punchy and hard and very him trying to kind of capture when we talked about him being jealous of Janet for Rhythm Nation. I think this was the closest he ever got to doing something that was sort of that political and high concept. And I think that this is a nice moment of kind of uh, calmness, even though obviously it's a lot more introspective than it is anything else. I think, you know, it it breaks up the album nicely because I think otherwise it just would have been a bit of an onslaught of, you know, fast beats and uh, political stuff and heavy stuff. This feels a little bit, although although it's still quite, because it's introspective, it feels a little bit of a breather for me. This track, This Time Around, I Can't Help It, I'm just going to say it, is this exactly the same as Can't Let Her Get Away from Dangerous? Does anyone else hear, hear this? It, it is, it is, definitely is. You can hear, um, especially in the parts that Bruce Swedean put together um, on This Time Around, that it's similar to Can't Let Her Get Away completely. What can you tell us about this one, Pez? Um, it was actually, again, there's a Madonna link. Um, <laughs> So I thought you might like that. So um, <laughs> Dallas Austin was working with Madonna at the time and uh, sort of got a call from Michael's people saying, hey, you know, Michael wants you to write write some stuff. So they were kind of saying to Madonna, instead of let's take five, they were like, let's take four hours. Um, and so while she was off on break, they were sort of hammering out beats for Michael to send something over for his approval. Uh, and they sent a few bits over and this time around was just a four minute loop, just the same beat going on for four minutes. And Michael sort of said, yeah, I, I'll take that, but I want to expand on it. And then Bruce Swedean, who was Michael's um, engineer jumped in and, and sort of made it what it became. Um, I mean, I love this time around again. I, I'm going to sound like I say that for everything, but trust me when we get later into the album, then I'll be, <laughs> don't love that. Um, but I, I just think it's, again, I think it's um, one of those songs on the record that really highlights potential that never was, you know, he could have gone in a different direction musically and I'd love to have seen what he could have done with Dallas Austin had they done more together. The time to talk show is a podcast made by passionate amateurs who simply love pop culture Unlike other podcasts, we can't raise revenue through traditional advertising, so we rely on the support of our listeners to keep us going. If you'd like to make a donation to Time to Talk, click on the link in the description. Your support will help with our production costs and allow us to keep bringing you content that celebrates, honours and skewers the very best and worst in the world of popular music, film, trends and culture. Thank you for enjoying our shows. We absolutely love our growing legion of loyal listeners. Pez, we're going to take a moment here and and ask, where where can people get their hands on your book? Um, Good question. (laughs) Um, So it's uh, available on Amazon. You can get it on Amazon. And it's also available from uh, 1611.com, which is uh, the word 16, the number 11.com. It must have been a labour of love. Yeah, I mean, as I say, it sort of took, you know, a year and a half to do. Um, and I was lucky enough to work with all the people who sort of worked on the album and had a, a key stake in it. Um, and, you know, really hard at times. It was, it was a lot of fun in some places. And then sometimes I had to take a week and throw a bit of a tantrum and then come back to it. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, definitely a labour of love. It's a, it, And what I love about this book too, um, and 
I'm not being paid at all to promote this. I just, I, I just love pop culture. I just love pop culture, and the, the the way you've put this together, it reminds me of Remember the Time, the background, and you've got the sand statue or the, yes. the um, sandstone statue instead, and you've got the carved history. It reminds me of Remember the Time. It's a beautiful cover, and I think the book has been whoever did that for you has put it together so beautifully. Oh, well, I did the cover with um, Diana Warzak, who did the album cover. So I sort of said to her, like, I want to do something different. I want to do something kind of, you know, a bit more historical. And I love ancient Egypt. So how about this? So I threw something together and I sent it to her. And she said, oh, that's great. Do you mind if I sort of tweak it a bit? So I said, yeah, that's fine. And so we just kind of went back and forward between us, tweaking it for about a month, I would say. Um, and yeah, that was a finished result. And it's, you know, I'm, I love that cover now. I'm so happy with the way it came out. Well, Pez, I'm glad it was you who did it because books that come out about artists or TV shows or any pop culture that are done by dedicated fans are usually just like there's little subtle moments in there that nobody else would get or care about. But good on you for doing it. It's, it's quite amazing. Let's okay. move on to the next track. Before Michael Jackson passed away, of course, he was working on his his um, what he described as his final tour. This is it. There was apparently going to be an amazing 3D display for this song, Earth Song. And, yeah, this is one of the songs of the History album, isn't it? It is epic. Anyone who enjoys singing will go, how does he get those last screaming notes? Because anyone else who does it at karaoke just sounds hideous. <laughs> <laughs> this is an amazing track. Tell us about this one, Earth Song, Pez. Um, so Earth Song sort of came about in 1989. So he was on the Bad Tour. Um, sorry, let me correct myself, 1988. Um, he was in Austria on the Bad Tour when he started working on Earth Song. Um, and it was very much this this big vision that he had of having like this big musical instrument to it at the beginning and then the middle bit and then a poem at the end. Um, and he wanted it to kind of be like the Earth's journey from inception to sort of, you know, destruction. Mm. And they sort of worked on it a bit for Dangerous under the title What About Us? Um, and Michael just sort of went, mm, it's not really there. I'll just put it in the cupboard. A little <laughs> bubbles, as I understand it. <laughs> and then when it came to uh, to history, he pulled it back out again and they, they sort of worked on it and reworked it. And then they got to that ending part and Michael was like, oh, this is just not quite right. He was doing everything in falsetto. And uh, one of the engineers said to him, oh, well, you know, when, when John Lennon was recording, um, God, I'm going to hate myself for this. I can't remember which song he was recording. But when John Lennon was recording a song, he, you know, broke his voice singing the this part of this song because he gave it so much energy and michael's like that's what i'm going to do so he didn't speak for a couple of days and then went in and just blew everybody away with that final vocal at the end of the song and that was the last bit they recorded before going to mix wow yeah i like honestly there's just such an energy to this song that um often doesn't come across in recorded versions sometimes in live versions you get that energy but here you can hear him in the studio absolutely so that story does sort of even though it's amazing and i've never heard it before doesn't surprise me yeah i mean earth song is one of those songs um where i think if you live in the uk and we had it as number one for like six weeks and you go to any charity shop and there's earth song next to the thriller vinyl um you know it's kind of haunts us a lot so <laughs> it's um it's not one of my favorites i should say um 
but you know it's an incredible song and it's it's steeped in kind of you know religious ideology and implication it's it's just oh it's a fantastically written piece and there was also the uh, the aforementioned um brit awards controversy with jarvis cocker before we move into that, like, let's set it up for those of you of people who might not have even been alive at the time. This was amazing, wasn't it? Because, Simon, he was doing the live performance. Yeah. He was Jesus-like. He had his arms outstretched, the white yeah. shirt, if I'm remembering, the wind in yeah. his hair. Tell yeah. us what happened. Um, and then Jarvis Cocker from the uh, indie band Pulp, who were really big at the time, uh, stormed the stage and um, took his pants down and showed his ass to the audience. Um, and when he was asked why he did it, he said he really objected to Michael Jackson's kind of religious Jesus Christ-like uh, performance that he was giving. And, you know, he, he didn't think it was appropriate. So he decided to show his ass to everyone instead. Yeah, so put the unconventional protest aside, I mean, the point was a lot of people with Earth Song and, you know, leading up to it too, particularly the teaser video, I suppose, that I was talking about earlier, were starting mm. to become a little bit galled by all of this. What does Jesus, Michael is really starting to believe he's Jesus Christ because, like I said at the beginning, no irony. So I, I sort of get why people were flat out. Uh, Can I ask, where, where does that, I don't see that. So... I'm, yeah. I'm interested to know th this this Jesus ideology. I mean, I can understand, you know, there are things where he could think he is more important than somebody else or he could think he is, you know, more compassionate than someone else. I don't get the Jesus thing. Okay, take Earth Song aside, because as we said, you know, we're building up to that point. Where Where do you guys see that coming in? I think it's, to me, I think it was always there from kind of the, late 80s from um moonwalker and stuff like that like i kind of i feel like there was always this like this otherworldly being protector of children kind of grand sort of graciousness that he was kind of putting on himself for quite a while really before we got to history and then by the time history happened it was literally just like i am the the most famous and most incredible human being alive, which means I must be God. And Pez, for me, I mean, it's a good question. Like, was this something that was put on him or did he create it? But this man was a shameless self-promoter and that was brilliant. At first... I think that's what it mean. No, absolutely. Oh, come on now. I don't think that's over the top to say Michael Jackson was a shameless self-promoter. He absolutely was the first artist in a long time to, you know, not directly, but, you know, get his publicity machine around him to put out packages, which um, montages of him. It started in a small scale, montages of himself showing that he's the greatest and, you know, the slow-mos and just montages. There was one that accompanied this um, uh, project as well. But he went from promoting he's the king of pop, and I know he didn't coin that term himself. but He did. He did actually coin it himself. <laughs> oh, he did. Well, there you go. An yeah. artist of the millennium. You know, he was doing this. So when you ask that question, like, is it really fair to say that he was promoting himself as Jesus-like, it started with that, but it elevated even beyond I'm the king of music and the king of pop and the king of rock and I'm the greatest, most important uh, musical artist to then the outstretched arms that's the crucifix right there. Mm. He's doing that and then the wind and without, like I say, without the irony or the sarcasm to humble us and realise that this is just music, 
and then surrounding himself with children during the dangerous era and ring and and you know putting a flower into the into the into a tank's ammunition whatever you call it pipe <laughs> like as if he can stop armies in their tracks yes he was responsible for creating the jesus vision I mean, I think a lot of that, which you've mentioned in particular, like the flower in the tank, I think you mentioned that on the Dangerous uh, podcast as well, that, you know, that's that stage performance, that showmanship. I don't think he thought, hey, you know, I can stop a war. But I think he liked to present the idea that, look, I have a platform and I have a voice. And if I can say to people, choose peace, don't choose war, that's what I'm going to do. I mean, yeah, you know, the, John Lennon said to himself, we're more popular than Jesus. He actually went out and said it. Um, yeah, with humour, with humour. But I've, I've always found with Michael, what I found interesting is that when Michael Jackson is successful, it's everybody's success within that machine that makes Michael Jackson. When Michael Jackson fails, it's him. It's just him and it's him alone. And and we see that so much, especially with the, you know, the criticism around her song and that performance, you know, there were choreographers there. There were costume designers there. There were all these people that were involved in that performance that said, yes, let's make this happen. Let's do this. Yes, that's going to be great. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But people go, oh, oh see, well, it's my – no, look, I'm not I'm not absolving disperse the blame for I'm that. Not, no way. But I'm yeah, not absolving people... him of blame, but what I'm saying is that people have enablers around them who – buy into that as well so you feel as an artist that you are larger than life because everyone around you is saying yes that's great yeah. oh my god it's amazing yeah, but, but, but please let, let's not forget that he handpicked his enablers you know he surrounded himself deliberately with people who didn't say no anyone who questioned him <laughs> mysteriously weren't there the next day so you know you're probably right but those people knew that they couldn't well, say anything I mean, that stage. to be fair I'm not going to go down the pub with people who think I'm a dickhead <laughs> it's like I'm going to surround myself with people who like me and madonna surrounds herself with people who can be brave enough and you probably would have to be brave but she listens when people go up to her and say you know what this one might be a step too far i mean the hard candy cover comes to mind you know she was going to be black madonna for that and yeah yeah listened. You know, anyway, look, it's an interesting conversation. This song really annoyed me for a long time because I couldn't work it out because, you know, this was a little bit before the internet, DS, and everyone was saying it was about Tom Snedden, who was the district attorney who really publicly led the charge to um, nail Michael Jackson for child molestation. DS, and I was always like, but everyone says it's Tom, but it can't be, it's DS. But clearly now I've learnt since the internet was born and I can go and look it up, but this was his way of avoiding, you know, a direct defamation charge, wasn't it? Am I right about that, Pez, or have I got it wrong? Yeah, no, it was pretty much TS until a week before they were going to go to press with the album. Oh, wow. Um, And when they were sort of working on it, uh, Bruce Swedean, who was Michael's engineer, pulled Michael to one side and said, look, if you do this with this song, you're going to open yourself up to lawsuits and a huge can of worms that you don't want to, you don't want to deal with. And Michael just said, "Look, I'm I'm having my say about this man, and I don't care. I'm ready for it. I'll do it." Um, so a couple of uh, lawyers came down from Sony and sort of pulled him to one side and said, "Look, if you do this, these are the implications. This is what you're opening yourself up to." And he said, "No, no, no. You know, I want to, I want to do it." And then it was sort of. 
as I say, a week before the album went to press, they they agreed to change it to DS, and they actually printed the lyrics. I think it's one of three songs that has the lyrics in the booklet, where they make a point of saying Dom Sheldon. I think just to say, <laughs> see, we're saying we're saying DS, we're not saying TS. Um, but no, it's definitely Tom Sneddon. It's definitely about the district attorney. I love it. This is also featuring Guns N' Roses guitarist Slash, good Michael Jackson friend, who is also on the Dangerous album as well. This is, uh, what are you making of this one, uh, Simon? I mean, he loves singing it live, and he, he sings I, I, I always imagine as he's writing this, he's going, yeah, I'm going to, this is going to be the one that my fans chant, that, you know, I'm going to have thousands of people singing this, yeah. and it's my revenge. Yeah. I don't like it. Um <laughs> I I think it's really boring. It's probably one of the only tracks on the album that I just think is really filler. I love the way it ends though, with Tom Stedden getting shot, probably in the forehead. <laughs> See, I dis I disagree. I don't think that's a gunshot at Tom Sneddon. Because the song opens with they want to get my ass dead or alive and then it ends with a gunshot. I think he's gunshot. Yes, think? I think Michael is fearful of being shot. And that's how it ends. That's my interpretation of it. Wow. That's an interesting way of looking at it. And you could quite be right. Track seven on the album, Money, um, allegedly written about Geordie Chandler's father, who, God, there's some fascinating stories um, about the, the meetings between them and the communication between, you know, uh, this lad's dad and Michael Jackson and his advisors. Incredible stuff. I, I love it. Go and look it up if you want some interesting uh, stories. But apparently this is about his greed, um, the child's father's greed. Is that correct, Pez? What have you got for us? Yeah, I mean, money's fascinating because it's the instrumental is actually uh, taken from a Norman Cook CD, Skip to My Loops. So they used to create these like drum loop sample CDs um, for people to use. And that's what money is. It's track 10. (laughs) Oh, I never knew that. Yeah. um, It's called Simon Special 1 and 2. So Simon, that one's for you. There you go. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And, you know, the lyrics, I, I love this song because the way he just pretty much speaks the lyrics. There's no kind of fanfare. It's not all over the top. It's just this is what I'm going to say. Um, and, you know, one of my favourite parts in the song is in the background. He says, if you want it, then earn it with dignity. And then he reels off a list of wealthy men. He names Buffett, Morgan, Trump, Rockefeller, Carnegie and Getty. And I find that bit, you know, really interesting because it's buried deep in the track. But if you listen, you can hear it. Yeah, I really like it. Um, but I will say I'm going to get roasted in the comments for this. The, the only thing I can think of when I listen to this now is that if there was ever any doubt that he wrote Do the Bartman, <laughs> this is like... You hear Do melodically, the Bartman money? Melodically, it's like, do, the chorus to me is like Do the Bartman 2, yeah. Um, <laughs> did, he, did he write Do the Bartman? He did, didn't he? Um, he worked on it. So there's always this kind of thing. He worked on it with Brian Loren. Um, they were doing stuff for Dangerous at the time. Um, and he worked on it. How much involvement he had, I'm not so sure. But Oh, it's the most Michael Jackson chorus ever. So it has to be. <laughs> but it's like, melodically, they're really, really similar. And they've got a very similar vibe. And even the kind of, there's like a similarity, I, I think, in the in the construction of it. And the, just the, yeah, it gives me a very similar vibe. 
track eight come together. I like this song because, I mean, first of all, he completely changes the spirit of it in a way. Uh, his version is really good. But am I right, Pez, that he would have been able to – he owned this song, so he didn't have to go to Paul McCartney, who was still alive, and ask permission. No, that's, he, that's correct. He owned this, right? Yeah. So, I mean, he recorded this in uh, 85. They recorded Come Together. It might have been 84. 85. What, the, the, the version on – Yeah, the exact same version. They didn't even change it. Um, his voice sounds so – because his voice changed over time, Yeah. Um, to me at least. I can, I can tell the era – of Michael by his voice a lot of the time, I thought his voice sounded very history era. You're telling me this was recorded way before. Yeah, so um, Michael basically, after he bought these songs, he sat down with um, his producer, or I think they were in the car. Michael claims he was coming home from church. The producer says, I was just driving him around. Uh, So so you choose who you believe on that one. And they were listening to Beatles songs, and, and Michael was like, which one do you think I should do? And his producer said, oh, let's do Come Together. And the producer sort of went off, played all the instruments himself and created this kind of basic MIDI track. Michael laid down the vocals and that was it. And then the next thing the producer know, the song had been put in Moonwalker and came out as a B-side to remember the time. And he was like, hey, that was just a demo. We hadn't finished it. Um, and it ended up on History as well. Wow. I wonder why I included it on History then. It's, you know, I, I assume they at least polished it up a little more. Yeah, I mean, they had done uh, Much Too Soon was a song that was finished. Um, they'd done bits and pieces on Why. Uh, they'd done a song called um, Joy that they were relooking at for history. They'd done Morphine. You know, there was all these other songs. And then uh, the engineers came in one day and, and had word that Michael had wanted them to pull Come Together up on the mixing desk um, and listen to it. And the full version has him sort of going on and on. It's about eight minutes long. Um, but when they came to putting history on CD and it was too long and they had to cut down. I think around eight of the songs had to be cut down and come together. They sort of had to chop it, but no, it's exactly the same. That's fascinating. I didn't know any of that. I prefer this version to the original. Um, So I will, I will actually preface that by saying that I was 14. I hadn't ever heard the original have come together at this point. Yeah. So the first time I ever heard it was this version and I played this album constantly um, and I was reasonably obsessed with it. Um, But I still, when I hear the Beatles version now, I'm still like, oh, I wish I was listening to the Michael Jackson version. (laughs) Um, I I think it's one of those rare covers that to me completely obliterates the original. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think it's interesting because it's one that Paul McCartney has never mentioned. Um, and you never really hear sort of white rock fans talk about Michael's version of Come Together. And I'd love to get their their take on it and see what they thought about it. Mm. Sometimes amateurs know best and a lack of professionalism is all you'll hear on the Time to Talk show. Join Tim and his panel of guests as they wade their way through a range of news, music, and pop culture treats. Time to Talk, the show hosted by amateurs for unprofessional listeners. Here's the divisive song on the album, You Are Not Alone, one of the few tracks on the album not written by Michael Jackson, as I understand it. Some fans, I think most fans love this, but the ones that don't like it really don't like it. Shout out to Lee, our regular panel member. (laughs) 
But Simon, you and I love it. I mean, besides the very disturbing video clip, frankly, really disturbs me. Yeah. But um, yeah. besides that, this is like, I mean, I don't know what they did. Did they digitally put that body on his head? Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, you are not alone. I, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful song. It's, you know, the, it's such a shame, isn't it? Because I can't listen to it now without, because it was written by R. Kelly, without, you know, just thinking um, about that complete car crash of a man. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great song, isn't it? It's like R. Kelly was such a good songwriter. I mean, probably could, could still be a good songwriter now. But, what you know, was such a good songwriter and it's such a shame that, so many of his pieces of work are now tainted, especially, you know, both the people that worked on this song are um, kind of tainted in some way, aren't they? But it's, it is such a beautiful song. Yeah. I mean, I personally don't really like the song. <laughs> so I, um, I, I just, yeah, I don't, I don't think it, it's not like anything else on the album, but it's very like everything else that was out at the time. And I think that's, probably why i don't don't gel with it as much um and i can just uh, i think you know maybe with hindsight i can hear r kelly's influence too much on the song that it doesn't feel enough of a michael song it very much feels like a here's a song now record um but yeah you know i mean when uh, michael was first played the demo of it he said to r kelly hey i'd like that but i want co-production credits on it and r kelly said no and then michael said no, I want co-production credits on it. <laughs> and R. Kelly said no. And then eventually Michael said, okay, fine. I won't have co-production credits. It sounds like but a I'm very mature it. discussion. <laughs> yeah, this, is, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is the abridged version. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Michael sort of made a lot of changes to it. So where the choir come in and it changes key, that was all Michael. He he did all of that part. Um, I knew. Thank you for saying that because I was uh, listening to it as a refresh for this. I've heard this song so many times because I love it. First of all, the bridge is like it's an incredible bridge, but that key change too, I, that's classic Jackson. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that was that was all him. He wanted to put that in. Um, and then, of course, they shot the, the video, which was initially pitched to the record company as just Michael on a stage sort of performing under a spotlight. Um, and within, I would say, 15 minutes of the first shoot, the uh, guy that was sort of from Sony went over to Michael and said, look, you're getting this wrong. You are not the you and you are not alone. You're telling other people, you know, you're not alone. I'm here with you. You're not the one hearing the song. You're the one singing it to somebody else. You're getting the emotion wrong. Um and so they kind of, you know, Michael was like, yeah. And there's a great picture of Michael being told this exact statement. There's a great photo of it. And um, he sort of said, yeah, yeah, you're right. And and tried to sort of switch it up. But I think what's interesting for me about, I know you mentioned about um, his body, is when they did remember the time, you remember he's wearing like a gold tunic under this kind of gold leaf wing thing. Um, that was not meant to be. He was meant to be shirtless. And he was so... Um, distressed by his skin condition at the time that he refused to be shirtless. So they came up with this gold tunic. So I think, mm. you know, pushing forward sort of four years later and he's opening his shirt and it's sort of like nothing blocking his heart as he's singing this song. I think it's a really um, standout moment for where he was at the time in, in his life and, you know, his image. So that's interesting. You're saying that this was a moment of great courage for him to actually do that. 
Yeah, I, th- I think so. I really sort of see it that way. I mean, I'm not a fan of the video either. <laughs> I, uh, I don't, I just, you know, that whole project for me is, is not a fun one. But um, I do, you know, I think it's a great moment of vulnerability to just sort of see him, no fuss around him, on a stage, spotlight, shirt open, here I am. Um, and I think, you know, I think it was a great moment of courage for him. What do we say about track 10, childhood? I mean, this is the one that Michael Jackson himself uh, repeatedly said, if you want to know about me, A, read my book, and B, listen to childhood. He wrote this in his Giving Tree, I think it was called. Uh, He's very, very proud of this song. It feels, the video clip, like a Disney production, um, which obviously he was a big fan of film, and uh, the video clip really highlights that. Childhood, I don't know. I, I, I struggle with this one um, because I don't think he's been entirely truthful with childhood. I think that even though the sentiment is truthful, I think this is a diversion, very much so for me, away from other issues. It's trying to say, look at this. This explains me. This is why. But instead of just taking responsibility for some of his behaviour, no, it, it was over here. It was in my childhood. There's something inauthentic about this song for me. What do you have to say there, Pez? I'm sure that you don't agree with that. Um, I mean, again, you know, Childhood is not not one of my favourite songs either. Um, I grew to appreciate it more as I was, was writing the book, um, sort of getting getting involved in Childhood. I think, you know, with with that song in particular, a lot of his later work is very much kind of given a broad stroke where people say, oh, you know, his career was in decline. Oh, he was just mad at everybody. Oh, he was just shouting. You know, he never sort of tells us what's on his mind, you know, and, and opens himself up a bit and is a bit more vulnerable. And he did with childhood. Now, whether you perceive that to be genuine or not is down to the individual listener. Um, but I think it really does speak to the sort of world that he had built around himself, you know, with his um, childlike persona and his enjoyment of things like, you know, everything that was at Neverland, which, hey, right now, if during this lockdown, I would love to have Neverland in my garden, <laughs> just putting it out there. Um, but I think I think it really all kind of speaks to that. Uh, again, you know, it, it's not one of my favourites. Um, and I think it's kind of, it's too ying for the yang of the history album, but it makes sense if he's telling his story. It, it's part of the story. Yeah, I, I mean, I kind of disagree with you completely in that I think it is very genuine and I think that there is a possibility that, you know, that this excuse of, oh, you know, he didn't have a childhood and that's why he, you know, he's the way he was, the way he was, I think is very possibly true. And I think that, you know, I just think, I just think it's so sad. I think this song is really, really sad. It, it makes me very upset to listen to it. I think it's beautifully crafted. It's a wonderful, wonderfully written song. But um, I, it just makes me so sad. Like, and and his vocal on it makes me really sad as well because he sounds so sincere for I think the the first time. Before you judge me, try hard to love me. Look within your heart, then ask: Have you seen my childhood? It's so sad, though. Like, can you imagine? Like, if 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 that is genuinely how he feels and or how he felt, can you imagine? having to put that into the world. And he wanted that to be the first single. Um, Originally, he wanted that to be the first one off the album, and and Sony said no, because they said it's just not going to resonate well with the audience. And that's why it ended up sort of um, hooked onto Scream as a double O-side. It was the B-side to Scream, wasn't it? 
Yeah, they kind of, it was the soundtrack to uh, Free Willy 2 as well. And there was a lot of push from MJJ Records to get it on there. See, and that's consistent with where I feel it's not particularly authentic. Let me just make this really clear because I don't think I've expressed it really well. I'm, I know that his childhood was hard and painful and a lot of his issues stemmed from childhood and I know that this song is completely his truth and his it's an accurate account from his point of view. What I'm saying is the way he manoeuvres it like a pawn on a chessboard and there you go, Pez is confirming he wanted it as single number one. On the backdrop of child molestation and the backdrop of all this negative publicity which for anyone who didn't live at the time, you have no idea. It was on fire. It was a monumental bushfire, and he wanted to respond with this song. It's strategic, and uh, that, to me, undermines the authenticity of it, the fact that he used it strategically. What would you have him come back with? So if you had to choose between a, a, you know, a theme for a comeback song off the back of the allegations, what, what would you have chosen? Oh, Scream was perfect. No, no, I mean, in t- so you think, like, in terms of what he was saying in the song made sense to the the answer to the fact that, you know, everything that had been said. Sorry, rephrase for me so I understand. So, you know, I think often Scream gets a, a bad rap as well because people sort of say, oh, you know, he's just come back, he's shouting, he's angry, and, you know, but then if he'd have come out with childhood, that's kind of people are saying, well, who are you? What are you about? And he's saying, well, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. So I just sort of wondered what other people think would be an ideal theme to talk about as your first comeback song from all of that. You know, some people might have thought, hey, he's just got married, maybe do a love song. Um, you know, I think I like the fact he chose Scream, but I also think childhood would have been a good way to say, hey, this is who I am. No, no. regardless of if he was guilty or not, the public wouldn't have, it wouldn't have gone down well. Sony was 100% correct not to do that plus it seems to me from all the stories you've told me today that they were determined to make this as least controversial as possible (laughs) yes it's true yeah they really didn't want any more fire and this would have childhood would have been a complete like um exoneration or an attempt at an exoneration from molestation it would have been perceived that way i mean i think one of the things that i find interesting about childhood especially with the video is if you look at where he's sort of sat on that log and he's got his knees together and he's huddled over the only time he's sort of done that was in another vulnerable video which was she's out of my life back on off the wall and there's such parallels between the two that these are two moments where he's talking about a really personal subject to him and he's kind of in the same position. And I think, you know, I kind of agree with Simon that there is a lot of it. It comes across very genuine. Now, what I mean by that is it's genuine for Michael Jackson. That may not be genuine to a random listener who thinks, mm, no, nah, I'm not buying that. But for him, that's the way in which he was able to be genuine. And I know that this song means a lot to the fans too, the ones that refuse to leave his side and want to stand by him forever i I get that and i and i respect it as well despite everything i've said tabloid junkie for me my favorite song on the album um it's my absolute favorite um so initially this was uh again out of the jam and lewis sessions so michael had recorded you're not alone and went straight from chicago up to minneapolis um to re-record his vocal for scream because he'd done his vocal and it was incredible He'd heard Janet's vocal and then got on the phone to Jimmy Jam and said, where did you record Janet? And he said, uh, Minneapolis. He said, right, I'm coming to Minneapolis. I'm redoing my vocal. 
Um, so he flew up there and re-recorded the screen vocal, which they didn't actually use. Um, and while they were sitting there, Michael sort of said, I want a song that sounds like The Knowledge from Rhythm Nation. <laughs> Why can't you get me a song that sounds like The Knowledge? And they were like... <laughs> We will will give you will give you this song, and he'd been saying it all through the history sessions. I need a song that's like the knowledge. And if you look at some early notes from the Dangerous album, he's even written on there. Need a song that's like the knowledge. So he wanted this thing, and and sort of Tablo Junkie was the closest they got, and you can hear a lot of similarities between the two. Um, it was originally called Tablo Jungle, and you can hear that again with the animal sounds and stuff. Oh. It's just a great. I think it's just a great pop piece. Um, I'd have loved it to have been released. I don't think it would have done well commercially, but it would have satisfied me, and that's all that matters. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I think it's um, I think it's a really telling piece. I think it's got a lot of kind of dark moments in it. I think we see a lot of what they're talking about in the song. Then I see a lot of that today. You know, there's a line where he says, "If he dies, sympathise," and that totally happened with Michael. You know, Michael died, and suddenly he's the king of pop again, and everyone yeah. reveres him, and he's amazing. And you know, he went through years of kind of you know struggles with the, with the press and with the media, and then he dies, and he's celebrated. And I think we see a lot of that in Tableau Junkie. That's why it sort of stands out to me as as one of the best. Next to Scream, it is my favourite thing on the album. But the only thing I'd written in my notes was about Rhythm Nation and the knowledge and the similarities. And obviously the fact that we talked in the Rhythm Nation podcast about him wanting to do something that would that had that kind of feel to it. Um, so, yeah, it's just, it's just very Janet, isn't it? So as much as I love it, and I think it's really interesting, and I'd have loved it to have been a single as well, I think that's probably I got love a lot the chorus, and I always find it really clever in the chorus how he changes up that last um, accusation in the last yeah. sentence in, every each time he does it. I think that's awesome. Do you think that with Michael Jackson generally, I mean, he was he seemed incredibly scared of being labelled homosexual, and on one hand, the fans would say, "Well, that's because he wasn't," and so no one likes to be told that there's something that they're not. Did he have some sort of homophobia in himself, this guy? No, I, w- I wouldn't say so. I think he, you know, he'd, he'd been asked about it in the past. I think, uh, you know, there's, there's a story, I don't know how true it is, about him sort of going to a bar opposite uh, one of the studios once and it turned out to be a gay bar and he was kind of, you know, so confused by everything that was happening in there and left. <laughs> I don't know which one he went into. But, um, you know, I think it, it's more just he was raised devout Jehovah's witness and mm. you know, that obviously played on the way he viewed certain, certain situations in life. But, you know, you look around him, most of his dancers were gay. There were people that worked in studio sessions with him that were gay. You know, his um, uh, wardrobe team that were with him for 25 years are gay, you know? And I, so I think he, he was around gay people and he was quite happy to be around gay people. So no, I, but I think it was more that it was this kind of thing with Michael that it's like, how many times do I have to say I'm not, you know, and that's, you know, for people that, that grow up gay, you know, they, they spend most of their school life sort of saying, I'm not, I'm not. And people are like, yes, you are. Um, now, you know, amplify that 10,000 times to be on the world stage and people are still saying it about you. And even today people are reporting Michael Jackson had a gay lover. And it's like, God, how many yeah, times do say, I need to say it? You're not going to like this, but I'm, I was just about to say the same thing. Um, I, th- I think it's very possible that he could have had uh, unprocessed feelings that meant that he 
um, maybe even feelings that he didn't understand that meant that he was very adamantly not gay all the time. Um, I, you know, even with, you know, talking when Madonna talks about when they were supposed to be working on in the closet and he came up with the title and she was like, you do understand what that means and what people are going to say about you. And he was like, yeah, that's fine. And then she worked on lyrics and he didn't like them because she, she went in on that angle and he wasn't comfortable with it. Um, and I think there were a lot of, you know, sort of unprocessed things that, that he, you know, so he wasn't necessarily homophobic, but I think there was definitely like a growing up Jehovah's witness and black and, you know, kind of with a very abusive father you know, the the last thing he wanted to throw into the whole mix was the possibility of maybe being gay as well, like Christ. That's I think it. there's... Sorry. That's all right. I was just going to say, I think there's a kind of... My issue with, with Michael and sexuality always comes back, you know, if you read some of the articles uh, in the press from, from sort of 85, 86, even 87, they always attribute the possibility that he's gay down to having a soft voice. Yeah, and yeah. it's just like... <laughs> How pedestrian is that statement? It's insane, you know. And then they'll say, oh, you know, well, he can dance and he can move, so therefore he must be gay. And it's like, wow. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, you know, as I, as I said to somebody, I was asked this on an on a interview recently about, about his sexuality. And, you know, personally, no, I don't think he was gay. I don't think he had any feelings or anything like that. But if he says, I am straight, and he told the world for his entire life, I am straight, then that's it. You know, he said who he is, and that's it. You know, it's not really it's not really something that other people can tell him he is, and if he's saying he is. The line in the song Tabloid Junkie that says, uh, she's blonde and she's bisexual, who are they referring to? I assume it was Madonna. Yeah, I thought that, you know. I don't actually know. I did kind of ask about... Uh, <laughs> when I was writing the book and, and nobody knew. Um, yeah, I, I wondered if it was Madonna. Well, because, you know, that was obviously post-sex book and, you know, her being quite openly bisexual and having, you know, a possible relationship with Sandra Bernhard. Like, no one was ever really sure. Um, and it was like... It was and post- Naomi. Yeah. That's what so- I like. <laughs> well, it was post all of that. So, you know, I think that... I just always assumed it was about Madonna. I hate Too Bad, but that's only because anything that borders on rock and like too overly masculine in terms of music, and Michael Jackson does this a few times on different albums, and so do other artists, I always stray away. Too Bad is, yeah, I don't like it, but at the same time, recognise and can see why it's a good song. Yeah, I mean, a lot of, uh, you know, Too Bad was one of the first songs they worked on um, organically for history. So Stranger in Moscow was naturally the first song, but Too Bad was one of the early ones. Um, and it was actually Bruce Swedean and Renee Moore who who started work on that and kind of came up with this sound. And then you're going to love this one again. Michael heard it and was like, Jimmy, I need you to come in and look at this. I need that hi-hat sound from Rhythm Nation. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Simon's rubbing his hands. I uh, know. So, <laughs> well, look, I love Janet as well, so I'm happy for the crossovers. But um, yeah, so so that sort of sound uh, was was brought across again, inspired by Rhythm Nation and uh, the family 
oh god i can't even remember the family sloan were you know some of the the stuff was taken from that because michael owned the rights so he was like i'll take some of that and stick it into too bad um and they had a lot of people working on that song um for me i think it's a great um kind of the way it comes it's almost like a prequel to unbreakable on the invincible album in which it's this really kind of fight back song that's done in military cadence you know that i don't know what i've been told it's on the same pattern as that i just think it's a really great kind of like standing your ground and standing up and i think sometimes it it outweighs some of those other songs earlier on in the record that are very you know defensive i think too bad comes at it from more a i'm going to knock you out the ring type approach one of my favourites on the album, History. I am obsessed with this song. I love the build-up. I love the, you know, the the drama of it all. And then it just it always swings into new directions. This song it goes from you know something really grand to something really soft, and then back to grand again. And it does. It captures the whole point of the title. It's it feels like history in the making. It's extremely grand. Love this song. <laughs> I don't like this song at all. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. Go on, tell us why, Pez. So, oh. give firstly, give me the dance version on Blood and the Dance or over the original any day. Yes. You know that Ooh. is that is a hit. This it, it doesn't know what it is. Um, you know, and if you take a song like Billie Jean, Billie Jean is unpredictable because it starts and you don't know where it's going to go, and that's what's so great about that song musically. History, you don't know where it's going to go. And when it does go there, you're like, oh, it went there. <laughs> you know, and I just down kind of... alley somewhere. Well, yeah, you know, up the street, round the corner and over the hill. It just kind of yeah. goes everywhere. Um, and I've just never kind of... I think they tried too hard. So History was one of the last songs they worked on. And Michael said to Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, I don't have a title track. And it needs to be called History, but I don't have a title track. Can you come up with something? And they were like, Michael, we're going to make you the biggest song you've ever had. And I think, <laughs> you know, that's famous last words. Michael himself said, if I walk into a studio and say, I'm going to write the best song I've ever written, nothing's going to happen. Yeah. And, Gotta you come know, from God. <laughs> the the oh. result of that is history <laughs> for me. Um, but look, you know, it was the biggest, uh, one of the biggest songs ever made in terms of mix. Uh, it had 192 channels that wow, had to be mixed. They had to wire consoles together through different studios in different rooms to get it to work. Um, all the, the engineers on the studio session are the ones doing the historical voiceovers, you know, sort of uh, reeling off dates in history. Um, but, yeah, I just feel lyrically it's so lacklustre. It doesn't say anything. It doesn't It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't give us a historical reckon, moment. I've got to say, for me, it resonates. Like, I, that whole theme, there's so many different expressions that say the same thing, which is, you know, don't forget that every second that you're breathing, you could be, you know, accomplishing, enjoying, experiencing. Don't just be. And that's what <laughs> the, the spirit of this song. And I love the fact that it's got a pre-chorus, which I love, and, I, and then I love the chorus. You know, they say every day create your history. So for me, I, I don't know, maybe it's a bit of a cliched message, but it's it's there though. Simon, you like this song, don't you? I do, yeah. I mean, it is very much like if it came out now, it would just be a quote on Instagram. Pez, is it fact or fiction? that I keep reading that it cost $50 million to make this album, and I'm assuming that's without the promotion. 
Did it really? Is that fact or fiction? No, that's fiction. Um, the most expensive album ever made is actually Invincible. Um, so still a, still a Michael Jackson album, so he still owns that title. But no, I mean, the, the figures have been, you know, wildly exaggerated. And I think that was part of the PR spin at the time to sort of, you know, the statue's massive, the the hair is massive, the, the budget was massive, the video's massive, there's Janet, there's Slash, there's Biggie, there's, the, you know, I think it was all part of that sort of hype around it. Very quick story. I went out with someone at around this time, and when I played Little Susie, she would go off her nut because this song scared and more than scared. The beginning of this song, Little Susie, is extremely morbid and horrific, actually, depending on the listener's own experiences. Yeah, but I had someone who just couldn't, like, as soon as she heard that little music box opening, which is a little, I think that's what this track starts with, would absolutely scratch the walls and me for me to turn it off so we were i actually had to program my cd player to play this album without this song in it little susie it's oh, what the hell is it about what is it it's very um awful isn't it is about the murder of a little girl so yeah little susie was written uh for off the wall believe it or not um way back in the 70s so there's a disco version out there. So. <laughs> well, that's that's exactly the kind of reason it didn't make off the wall. I don't know why. <laughs> and the trailer were bad and dangerous and, you know, shouldn't have made history. Um, but it did. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to be positive about this. Um, so, yeah, it was sort of written around the time Michael had written Be Not Always as well for Victory album. And it was it was in that vein of, of songs. Um you know, I've tried to trace the origin of that story. There's a claim online about this little girl called Susie, somebody that, you know, fell down the stairs and died. There's no truth to that. I've, you know, traced it back as far as I could. Um, absolutely no truth to that. Nobody actually knows, you know, what inspired him to write it. Um, but I think he finally got to do it on history. It just kind of was like, hey, I've thrown everything else on this. Why not little Susie? Um, and, you know, I, I do think it was kind of a... I've always said this and got a lot of hate for it. I think it was a kind of poor attempt at recreating Will You Be There vibes with the choir at the beginning and then Mm. dropping into the song. Um, They did the whole song with an orchestra and then Michael didn't like the way it sounded and had them remake the entire song on MIDI. So there's some more of that budget gone to waste. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, you know, it's... uh, I guess if it was going to go anywhere, it would go on history. And I kind of, you know, I talk about it in the book and say that it's the last dark cloud on the album um you know it's this tragic story of this girl that falls down the stairs and nobody seemed to care and you know the lyrics tell themselves a lot of them come from a poem that was written in the 1800s there's similarities between the poem called the bridge of sire um but yeah i mean it's uh it's an interesting piece it's definitely like a film score for me but i wouldn't say it's it's really an album track and it breaks. It's one of the, if ever there was a song that breaks Michael's convention where he claimed that every song on a record should be a single, I think little Susie breaks that, that convention. Yeah, it it is a bit odd, isn't it? I mean, it starts off with PAA zoo and then like just kind of goes into, I mean, the, the main song just sounds like sunrise sunset from Fiddler on the Roof. Well, listen to this, right? For, for a guy who loves, children somebody killed little susie the girl with the tune who sings in the daytime at noon she was there screaming beating her voice in the doom but nobody came to her soon a fall down the stairs her dress torn over blood in her hair a mystery so sullen in the air i mean i want to throw myself off a bridge right now she lie there so tenderly fashioned so slenderly lie 
her with care over blood in her hair. And everybody came to see the girl that's now dead. I mean, you're right. This is poetry. Um, but, I mean, it's very morbid poetry. It's a horrible, horrible tune. Horrible. He'd worked on a song for Dangerous called Michael McKellar, which they did actually pull out for the History Sessions as well, which is, a, a, again, another song about um, child neglect. Um, the, and the lyrics are sort of floating online. No one's ever heard it. But it's this, this story about this kid called Michael McKellar. And, you know, from the lyrics alone, it sounds like it would have made a better choice. But as I say, you know, I think at this point in history, literally in the album, he had thrown everything else at it. And hey, if you're exhausted by history and you get to Little Susie, you can just kind of breeze on through. Like what? I'm like, if you've been accused of being a child molester, wouldn't you just leave that subject alone? I think that is, you know, a, a really good point. And I think that leads into how Michael saw things like the allegations against him. If you, he he was kind of saying, you know, I haven't got anything to hide. I'm not going to leave that alone because I don't, I don't have anything to hide. You know, I mean, sort of diverting off the topic slightly, I've always said, you know, people say, oh, he had children in his bedroom. I'm like, yeah, how do you know that? Because he sat on TV and told you that. You know, mm. if he had anything yeah. to hide, you know, if you're hiding money under the floorboards, you don't say, hmm, don't look under the floorboards. Oh, <laughs> I agree. It's like dead children is just a bit of a weird way to go with it. Do you yeah, know what I mean? It's like yeah, and, definitely. I do. I do understand where you're coming from on that one. <laughs> I understand everything else, but the dead children. I'm just like, really. Pez, I have to say this: like Michael Jackson didn't just openly declare that he has children in his bedroom, so therefore he's got nothing to hide. He was highly uncomfortable by the young boy sitting next to him, who he never expected would actually start talking about sleeping arrangements. He had to stump up and say something, so he didn't do it off his own bat. That's not true. Uh, yeah, actually, it is. That whole scene was pre-rehearsed, and the hand-holding thing came from Martin Bashir. Are you telling me that Michael Jackson's reaction there, as this boy is going through the account of what he does in Michael Jackson's bedroom, and Michael Jackson's sitting there with a smile on his face that denotes sheer horror and pain, that he actually scripted that? that well, it wasn't scripted, but it was discussed. They said he's going to talk about this, and then one of the team said, hey, can you hold his hand? You know, it's going to show everyone how much you care about this kid. Yeah, hand-holding aside, though, that look on Michael Jackson's face is the look of somebody who is terrified about what's to come out of that boy's mouth. <laughs> so, interesting. Well, again, maybe another podcast, but yeah, <laughs> I don't know about Michael Jackson stumping up and openly talking about it firsthand until he was forced to do so. The final track is Smile. Uh, it was a really good track, one of my favourites in the world, until Jermaine Jackson sang it. That was a bit of a shame. Charlie Chaplin had a part in writing this too. Yes. Uh, originally, it was just an instrumental that uh, Charlie Chaplin wrote, and it wasn't uh, until a few years later that they had uh, lyrics added to it. And it's sort of, you know, it's one of those songs that's been around for years. I think Nat King Cole did, did the first version. Um, and Michael had wanted to do it for decades. You know, he'd wanted to do this, this song. Barbara Smile. Streisand did it too, I think. Oh, I must have missed that one. <laughs> <laughs> it up. I could be wrong. <laughs> um, but uh, basically what happened was David Foster came uh, to see Michael at um, the Hit Factory in New York and they were going to discuss doing a song together. So the team sort of decorated one of the studios with sofas and some plants and a piano and sort of really set up this this vibe and, and sort of shut them in there and said, there you go, now create some music. 
And Michael would sort of say, oh, why don't we try this? And David Foster would say, no, that's horrible. And David Foster would go, how about this? And Michael would say, no, that's ghastly. And that sort of went on for a couple of hours until they both came out of the room exhausted and said, hey, we're going to do a cover of Smile. Um, and that, that's pretty much how, how that came about. And then, you know, the same day they recorded Childhood, they had a big orchestra come and they did, they did Smile on the same day. Um, what I love about that song in particular is that Michael did several takes with the orchestra, went downstairs and recorded the song top to bottom vocally 14 times, one after the other. Wow. And that song is a composite of all of those takes. So uh, every breath, every word, every snippet may be from a different take and they've pieced it all together. His lyrics on this are beautiful. I know it's one of his favourites too. You know, he was in the documentary humming it and singing bits and pieces of it. He really enjoyed this song. He had a connection with Charlie Chaplin too. He had fascination with lots of historical figures. Uh, I, the, the, the end of this, the, I mean, it's just, it's just a beautiful song, but the, the interpretation he does of it is amazing because it's such a melancholy song. Of course, it bookends the album too, doesn't it? We go from Scream to Smile which is a, a beautiful rounding off, but this is not a happy song. No, I mean, it, it kind of, you know, the way it ends, it, you can almost hear him kind of laughing but crying at the same time. Yeah. And uh, as I said earlier on, you know, it's that that idea of him sort of skipping off into the sunset and it really is kind of, you know, history complete. I've done. I'm. This is the end of an album. I think it's one of the greatest ends of an album ever, you know, from, from where you've started to where you end up. Um, I think it's just a, a fascinating journey. And, you know, everybody I spoke to that worked on the record just sort of said this this song is just, you know, it does something to people. It really makes them feel a certain way. You know, it makes them feel really emotional when they hear it. I have kind of more association with it now with the fact that one of the versions of it, I think it's the Nat King Cole version, was used in Joker. So oh, yes. I kind of associate it with the slightly more negative connotations of that i think now so i find it more difficult to listen to i also thought david foster was a really weird person for him to work with yeah they'd worked together a bit in the past i think they did some some stuff for off the wall as well um but i've got uh some mixed reports on the, on those uh sessions from history with david foster which i will definitely kept out of the book but will also save for another time <laughs> Interesting. Can you give us well, because he was mostly doing stuff with like people like Celine Dion and stuff like that at the time, yeah. wasn't it? It's like an odd. It, yeah, like, I think it's. Yeah. I think it's one of those ones again. Like sort of what I said about history, of the song that you kind of expect magic. You're like David Foster. He's going to give me like you know a Celine Dion hit, and mm. it just didn't quite happen you know and I mm. think that's that's always when you put too much pressure on this idea of bringing together this, you know these two massive forces that something magic is going to happen. And, you know, that doesn't always, that's not always the case. I think Stevie wonder said the same about his duet with Michael on the bad album. You know, he was like, it, it just wasn't very special. I mean, I love it, but I think people want more from when you get these two powerhouses come together. And that's why scream is so amazing because they were two powerhouses and it was amazing. Did they get along well in the studio or not? Uh, David Foster and Michael. Yeah. Got on, you know, relatively well. Um, but I think, uh, especially when it came to childhood, there was some sort of tensions around who was doing what and who made better versions and of the instrumental and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. So it's, um, yeah, I think it was a tense time, a short and tense time. <laughs> 
Pez, tell us this. Did this album history, did it perform well? Was it critically received well? And where does it land in Michael's musical landscape? Um, yeah, it performed. It, it really depends on which way you look at it. I mean, you know, the numbers were good. They weren't Thriller, but nothing was ever going to be Thriller. And I think that's something looking that... Looking at around 20 million, is that right? Yeah, I mean... it. It can be either counted by number of uh, units or number of discs. So, you know, it's often counted by discs, which gives it two, um, mm. you know, doubled the amount. Um, but yeah, it did around sort of, you know, I think it's 20, 23 million, something like that. Um, Do you think that um, a lot of people say, yeah, but you know what? History wouldn't have been, it would have been a, a commercial borderline failure if it wasn't for the greatest hits. It's really hard to determine this, isn't it? Why were people purchasing this album? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at especially the early promo for the album and on the TV uh, clips and all sorts, they were just focused on the greatest hits. And they go, here's all these greatest hits, plus the new song, Scream. You know, and they didn't really give you a flavour of what was on the second disc. Um, and a lot of the criticism was kind of suggesting that Michael was relying on the success of the hits to sell um, the second disc, which... You know that that could be true in some territories and not in others. Probably in the US, I would say there was a big part to play in that. Not so much in Europe. Um, but you know, I mean, the greatest hits to me—that's the disc I never take out the box. <laughs> I was literally just going to say I have never listened to the great to no. the first CD of the greatest hits. Yeah, it's and it's interesting to note that Smooth Criminal wasn't included on that disc one. Um, and I definitely asked around about that to find out why. Couldn't find any reason as to why, but it's um, it's probably one of his most famous songs that wasn't included. Totally. Maybe they thought it was a bit too on the nose. I, I did wonder if there was a kind of feeling that, you know, including the song with that title, um, but then you look at the whole of disc two and it's kind of like, well, <laughs> it wouldn't have mattered. <laughs> yeah, true. So it's fair to say this was successful, regardless. I mean, it was genius to package it up with the greatest hits, which he'd resisted doing up until this point. As I understand it, Dangerous was even going to be like a, a greatest project as well at, at some stage and before it became Dangerous. So he'd been resisting this for a while, so it's no surprise. And the remastered thing that I mentioned at the top as well, this was pretty special at the time for some people at least i really wanted to hear those tracks that i already had but i wanted to to buy them in this remastered format yeah and i mean i think that was that was well perceived in general by people as i said the critics kind of didn't like it but the critics didn't like anything really about history they didn't really have much you know pleasantries to give it um one of the guys from the record company that i speak with often um said to me Literally, I would walk in every day and just close my eyes before I started work and think, what are they going to say today about this record? <laughs> um, and he was like, it would just felt like that every single day because it got to a point where we just couldn't do anything right. You know, everything was like, oh, and it's this. Oh, and how dare he say that? Oh, and, you know, this is terrible. And we were like, you know, they said by, I think they said by um, uh, the next release, uh, the release of 1996 uh, with they don't care about us they were just kind of exhausted with it and just said yeah you want to go to brazil cool here's the cash off you go um and they just kind of step back from it a bit pez did they choose the right singles um yes i think they did um i think they they played to their strengths um i think they played to commercial hits I can't think of, you know, fans obviously have their choices and I have mine as to what I would have loved to have seen as a video. 
but you know, would would you put money out over Earth Soul? No. Yes, <laughs> I think they they definitely picked the right ones. Obviously, Smile was meant to be the last single and got cancelled at the last minute, um, which I think would have rounded it off really nicely. But no, I definitely think they they picked the right ones. Why did it get pulled? Um, so he was meant to do a live performance on Vetendas in 97, by which point Blood and the Dance Floor had already come out. So there was this really horrible cross-contamination between the two albums that Sony had just messed up. Um, and he was meant to do this Vetendas performance and it got cancelled. So he didn't, he didn't show for it. And that was going to be the video. And initially, even before the album came out, he'd shot some footage of himself, um, dressed as Charlie Chaplin, imposed into a Charlie Chaplin film. And he said, I want this to be the video for, for Smile. And the Chaplin estate, who he was friends with at the time, said, no, <laughs> um, we, 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 don't, we don't want you to do that. And he said, okay, I, I respect that. And uh, yeah, and so it was cancelled. In researching for your book, Piz, what was the most interesting thing that you discovered as a huge Michael Jackson fan yourself who already knew a lot and a ton of knowledge? What was the thing that surprised you the most? Oh, um, I think there was there was quite a lot. I mean, it was just it's more these kind of little nuances that just crop up in different places, and you're like, oh wow, I never knew that. Um, for example, Michael is uh, I'll get to it is playing the guitar on DS, but when I say playing the guitar, he's pressing notes on a keyboard. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> They basically programmed a guitar sound, in, and he was like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna find a sound." And he did the da 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 da, and he's like, "Oh, I love it!" So he's credited as playing guitar on that song for pressing like you know five notes, which I think is great. Um, and another, you know, interesting fact that I learned is where they shot "They Don't Care About Us" in Brazil. They filmed uh, the big bit where they film in the square, and they've got all of them, and they're they're uh, filming in that square. That square was a, a place that was historically used for African slaves to be taken and publicly punished. Um, and it's named, the name of that square actually translates to the wooden frame where people were put in the stocks and punished. And I find it fascinating that Michael then went back there with Spike Lee and performed a song about you know, racial injustice in that square. I think it's a really um, pivotal moment that, that doesn't, just, you know, seldom known. So I think that that was a really like wow moment for me when I was writing. Incredible. Yeah. Sounds like you went on quite a journey, I've got to say. Now, <laughs> you really did. Uh, final question to you both. Should people listen to this album, Simon? Yeah, definitely. I think it's, it's just a classic album, isn't it? I mean, all the singles are iconic. Um, and I do think it's his, although I love some of Blood on the Dance Floor, I do think it's his last brilliant album. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with Simon. I think it's the last album that Michael really kind of... It's the last Michael Jackson album, if that makes sense. You know, the, the stuff that followed was very much other people's influence and Michael was kind of a, a feature. Um, but History is very much a him album. Um, I'd say skip disc one because you don't need it and you already know it. And, you know, listen to disc two and listen to it on shuffle as well because it's a great surprise. Simon, how lucky have we been to have pairs on the line? Oh, very. It's been fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Piers, I hope you come back sometime. And, and listen, what I really respect about you during this conversation is you've let me challenge you without getting overly riled up. And I truly respect that because sometimes you talk to fans from different fan groups and you say anything out of line and, yeah, you've got some major drama on your hands. Tim's a very <laughs> interesting person. 
so yeah. you've done very well. Look, Michael Jackson, you're, you're bound to come up with challenges and, you know, I've faced it for many years. And I think the most important thing is, uh, you know, if his fans can be his biggest critics. I sit with my friends and we talk about all the things he did wrong. Or why did he do that? Or why did he dress like that? That's horrible. What was going on with the hair there? You know, we do all this sort of stuff. And I think it is when you're talking to people that aren't kind of in your circle, if you're you know, a dedicated fan, sometimes you can forget about outside opinions or outside perceptions. And to me, if somebody just shouts me down and says, no, nah, 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 I'm just not going to listen. I'm going to switch off and dream about cake. Um, so, <laughs> you know, if, if I feel that, you know, when you approach these topics in a way that maybe gets people to think about things in a different manner, then that's always what I try to do with Michael. But it's not it's not always the easiest task. Well, it's been brilliant talking to you, Simon. You've been awesome as always. And Pez, it's been fascinating. Thank you for well, all the hard work me. you put into this book. People need to go and get it. Uh, the book is called The Story of History, and you can get it on Amazon. Thank you both for your time. Thank you very much.